0: We're standing by for police body cam footage from the tragedy inside that Louisville bank. The lead starts right now. New details about a bank employee turned killer in Kentucky and the five people he murdered. Why did he live stream the attack? Why did he target his colleagues? The investigation to get answers as we learn the actions of heroic officers who took out the gunman before he took even more lives. Plus. The mayor of Louisville with an urgent plea to elected leaders in his state.
1: Let us, the people of Louisville, make our own choices about how we reduce gun violence in our city. But will anyone in power heed his request? And setting
0: the stage for the blockbuster trial Dominion versus Fox, a judge's stern warning today as the Murdoch Network faces a $1.6 billion lawsuit for its many lies to the American people. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead. Next hour, we expect Louisville officials to release police body camera video of officers' responses to yesterday's mass shooting at a local bank. The city's mayor says the video will be played at a press conference scheduled right now for 5 p.m. Eastern which we will bring to you live as soon as it begins. Today, Louisville officials also released more information about the gunman who they say purchased the AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle legally last Tuesday. Police also confirmed that they've carried out a search warrant at the shooter's house. Overnight, tragically, another victim passed away in the hospital, bringing the death toll of innocent people murdered yesterday in Louisville in this incident to five. 57-year-old Deanna Eckert, 40-year-old Joshua Barrick, 63-year-old Thomas Elliott, 45-year-old Juliana Farmer, and 64-year-old James Tutt. Doctors say that the rookie officer who was shot in the head by the gunman yesterday is still in critical condition. Officer Nicholas Wilt graduated from the police academy just 10 days before he responded to the scene yesterday. CNN's Adrian Broadus starts off our coverage today from Louisville, where police have released new dispatch audio revealing that the gunman left a voicemail before his deadly attack.
2: Another American city in mourning following a mass shooting that killed five and left eight others injured.
1: 25-year-old white male, Connor Sturgeon, 6'4", he's texted a friend, called a friend, left a voicemail, he's going to kill everyone at the bank, Feeling suicidal.
2: Police dispatch audio revealing that the gunman left a voicemail for a friend before the shooting. This as we also await the release of 911 calls and surveillance video from the scene. Police say the gunman live-streamed the attack on Instagram. It was later taken down. A city official who has seen the video tells CNN the attack on bank workers lasted about a minute, with the gunman stopping to sit down in the lobby apparently waiting for police. The official says in the video you can hear a female co-worker saying, quote, good morning to the gunman. Then the gunman is heard telling her, quote, you need to get out of here. The official says the gunman then tries to shoot, but the safety is on and the weapon isn't loaded. And once the weapon is loaded and the safety is off, he shoots her in the back. Her condition is not known. Five people were killed.
1: Late yesterday, we learned that Deanna Eckert passed. She was 57 years old.
2: Several others remain in the hospital, including a rookie police officer who was shot in the head. Police say they have executed a search warrant on the gunman's home and have new information about the weapon. We have also learned that he purchased the weapon used in this tragic incident on yesterday on April the 4th. He purchased the weapon, legally, from one of the local dealerships here in Louisville. And now, another community tries to wrap their head around devastating gun violence, including Dr. Jason Smith.
3: To be honest with you, we barely had to adjust our operating room schedule to be able to do this. That's how frequent we are having to deal with gun violence in our community. I'm weary. There's only so many times you can walk into a room... And tell someone they're not coming home tomorrow
1: and it just breaks your heart
2: that was dr smith after i asked him what was on his heart he told me for 15 years he has treated victims of violence and those who come into the hospital with gunshot wounds among those he's treating Officer Wilt, who is still in critical condition. Officer Wilt was trying to protect people when he entered this bank that's now boarded up from those gunshot wounds. We are also learning Officer Wilt has a heart for public service. I spoke with someone who knows him well, who told me he was a volunteer firefighter in a neighboring community. That's something he's done since 2016.
0: Jake. Adrian brought us in Louisville, Kentucky, for us. Thank you so much. Today, Louisville's mayor pleaded with Kentucky lawmakers to try to find a way to work together to pass new gun restrictions, noting this about the weapon used in yesterday's horrific attack.
1: Under current Kentucky law, the assault rifle that was used to murder five of our neighbors and shoot at rescuing police officers will one day be auctioned off Think about that. That murder weapon will be back on the streets one day under Kentucky's current law. It's time to change this law and let us destroy illegal guns and destroy the guns that have been used to kill our friends and kill our neighbors.
0: Let's bring in CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell. Josh, walk us through this law uh, and other relevant gun laws on the books in Kentucky.
4: Yeah, Jake, so under Kentucky law, whenever police confiscate a weapon, if it's not retained for what they call official purposes, the law says that it shall be auctioned off. Not that it may be auctioned off, it shall be auctioned off. And it's important to note that the spirit of that law was likely intended for a positive purpose, and that was generating revenue. Uh, The law states that funds from those auction sales will go to uh, purchase police supplies, purchase service animals, increase safety at school. But of course, the big question here is after a mass shooting, Under this state law, that law is now being required to be auctioned off. And so, as the mayor pointed out there, it could end up in the hands of someone else. So that is obviously uh, something that that, uh, lawmakers there will be taking a look at. Let's look at some of the other laws uh, in the state of Kentucky. Uh, Of course, after these mass shootings, the big question comes, how did a shooter get access to the weapons? It's important to note that there are quite lax gun laws in the state of Kentucky. It is a, a strong gun rights state. Under the state law, there's no requirement of a universal background check before you get a weapon there are no so-called red flag laws. So even if someone in the shooter's orbit had concerns and wanted to petition a judge to have a firearm taken away in that state, that's not on the books. And there's also no permit to require uh, the carrying of a firearm. It's important to note, I'll have you listen here to our colleague Jennifer Messia on the scene in Beach. She points out that when that permit uh, law was rescinded back in 2019, lawmakers also got rid of a requirement that would have made uh, gun owners show that they're actually proficient with a weapon and how to Operated safely. Take a listen.
2: Before permitless carry was enacted in 2019 in Kentucky, in order to get a concealed carry permit, somebody had to prove that they knew how to fire a gun and they actually had to pass a shooting test. So you went to a shooting range and you had to make 11 out of 20 shots on a target in front of an instructor, and that instructor had to sign off. When permitless carry was adopted, that requirement was eliminated.
4: Now, take a look at these final elements of gun ownership in Kentucky, and these have uh, been quite controversial as of late. We've heard people calling for reforms, particularly because under Kentucky, you can get a gun despite having mental health issues, despite being subjected to a restraining order for domestic abuse, despite having uh, been convicted for a violent misdemeanor. And, of course, a lot of questions here after the shooting. We'll wait and see whether lawmakers there actually get together and try to tackle some of these issues. It's important to note, Jake, that we know national polling shows that nearly 90 percent of Americans, favor gun background checks, looking into someone's past before they can get a deadly weapon. We'll have to wait and see whether lawmakers in Kentucky actually move forward on any types of reforms and changing some of these laws. All
0: right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN contributor Stephen Gutowski. He's the founder of The Reload, which focuses on guns and gun policy. Stephen, let me start with uh, a question that I ask you quite often, sadly, which is, do you know of a law that might have prevented this particular shooting from happening? Because as far as I know, the shooter didn't have a criminal history, didn't have a history of, and we'll, you know, we're going to learn more about him in the right. coming days, didn't have a history of, of drug abuse, didn't have a history uh, of uh, emotional or mental problems. Do you know of anything that would have stopped this legal purchase from happening?
5: No, and the reality is in this situation, he went through a background check to purchase the gun that he used. So... They did check on all of those things, even though it's not required for uh, carrying a gun in, in Kentucky now. He did go through a background
0: because he check Because right? he bought it at a gun dealer yes, and there's a federal background check system.
5: Exactly, that's correct. So any, any licensed dealer has to do a background check whenever they sell a gun to a civilian, uh, like what happened in this situation. So, uh, you know, as far as signs that we're aware of right now for what could have made him prohibited from owning a gun... We don't have any. He didn't have a criminal ba- uh, criminal history that was severe uh, or any at all. It seems like, from what we understand right now, uh, and he didn't have a, a history of being committed. There are other ways. You know, there's red flag laws, which is something we talk about a lot, and yeah. and was discussed in that segment. Uh, that's that's sort of a middle ground between um, what can be done for somebody who's been who's experiencing severe mental health issues with yeah. a threat to themselves or others. We've seen there's, that with
0: the Buffalo shooter, with right. the Uvalde shooter. There there were I mean, we yeah. see it troubled young men who the society knows that they're troubled, mm-hmm. but you have to use the red flag law.
5: Right. And there are other laws, not just red flag laws. There's, there's there's more severe options that are available in almost every state which is involuntary commitment, but that's a much higher bar to actually get someone to be put through that process, then that, that's where advocates of red flag laws come in. They want this sort of temporary removal of firearms with lower standards for what qualifies somebody to have their guns removed. And obviously that's also what makes them controversial to gun rights advocates who believe that the standards aren't high enough, don't protect the, the rights of people involved.
1: So Louisville
0: police say this was a targeted incident. The shooter knew the victims. Is that common in most mass shootings?
5: It is, according to the Violence Project, uh, insider attacks like this where the person is uh, re- has some relation to the target that they're going These are people through. he worked with. Yeah, yeah, that's that's unfortunately a common feature of these sorts of mass killings that we've seen. Uh, additionally, the the suicidal ideation that was discussed uh, as well is, is a common feature among mass shooters of this nature. In fact, that's one of the things where, uh, you know, mass shootings of this, this type, where someone goes and kills a lot of people in a single incident in public, uh, they are uh, the, the people who carry those out are very frequently suicidal. They very frequently want to die during this incident. And perhaps one of the ways we can look at prevention of these particular types of shootings, not all gun violence, of course, but these particular types, is really to look at uh, the same methods we would use to prevent suicides, Uh, Because you're trying to off-ramp somebody from doing something like this, just like you would try to off-ramp somebody from taking their own life.
0: Yeah. Our society, as of right now, really relies a lot on individuals to step in uh, and do something if they see somebody who is troubled. Um, Whether or not that's enough is another issue. Stephen Gutowski, always good to see you. Thank you so much. The Louisville mayor says 40 people have been killed from gun violence this year alone. And because of that... He has an urgent request for lawmakers, but is his ask realistic? Also had President Biden's phone call today with the family of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who is detained in Russia. What the president also revealed about another American also behind bars. Stay with us. And we're back with our national lead, the Louisville, Kentucky mayor today, begging for legislative action on gun reform after five people were killed. Innocent people were killed in a mass shooting yesterday in his city. One of those victims was a close friend.
1: Let us implement policies that work for us. So please change our state law to let Louisville make its own decisions about reducing the amount of illegal guns on our streets. And gun violence that is killing far too many people.
0: With us now, CNN political director uh, David Chalian. And David, uh, obviously, as we've covered now, you and me together literally for decades, uh, legislative action on gun reform is much easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me bring up a map to give an idea of what the mayor of Louisville is up against. Um, This is the 2020 presidential election results map. A sea of red. Louisville's that small blue dot at the top, Kentucky- predominantly Republican, 80 of the state's legislators, 100 House seats are Republican. Um, Is he asking for the—I mean, they do have a Democratic governor. They do. um, But, you know, is he asking for the impossible here?
6: Well, I don't want to say anything is impossible uh, in politics, but it certainly is an uphill climb of what he's asking for. You note the 80-20 split in the House. I'll just say there are 37 senators right now. There's a vacancy in the Kentucky Senate, okay? Seven of them— are Democrats. Five of those seven are from Louisville. That, that, that is just like where all the Democrats live. And Jake, we see this in state after state after state in the country, the way we Americans sort of sort ourselves politically where you know, those Democratic population centers like Louisville, all the Democrats are in there. And then it's, it's a big sea of red. So it's not, it's not just Kentucky, which by the way, only seven states did Donald Trump in 2020 have a wider margin of victory than he had with his 26 percentage point victory in Kentucky in 2020. So yes, it is a red state, but it also mirrors sort of how America sorts itself.
0: And how is Kentucky, do you think, an example of the larger issue of cities begging for help when it comes to gun violence, um, but the state and federal level having to answer with the political reality that even if most Americans support common sense gun measures like red flag laws or universal background or, or universal background checks. Uh, it, politically, it's a very heavy lift.
6: It's a very heavy lift. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the power of a lobby like the NRA that has on uh, Republican politicians. So where you have super majorities in these states in some of these states of Republicans, the idea that gun laws are somehow going to be uh, loosened or restrictions are going to become more loose, that that just seems a uh, a hill too far to climb for activists. We have seen, we should know, we have seen some legislation. Just last year, there was a bipartisan but uh, bill in Congress that got passed that Biden signed into law that dealt with some gun issues. But as you know, that's sort of like tinkering at the edges around these other issues that you describe have massive popular support, but the political structure is such a blockade so it requires a way around that, and I don't think we've seen our politicians find that. We?
0: Yeah, we should say also, uh, after the, the Parkland shooting uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in, in Florida, that Republican state, Florida, actually did pass a number of measures, not just uh, school safety measures, but also red flag laws uh, and, a, and a bunch more, with a Republican governor, Rick Scott, who did not support bringing those same laws on a federal level when he became a senator. Exactly. David Chalian, thanks so much. Coming up next, it's not all smiles for this homecoming, the volatile landscape President Biden is walking into as he arrives in Northern Ireland this hour. Stay with us. You're looking at images, live images from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Air Force One just touched down. It's a trip that President, a trip that President Biden hopes is Both a celebration of diplomacy and a homecoming. But his timing may not be that lucky as the security situation in Northern Ireland is increasingly getting dicey. Today, Irish police say they found four suspected pipe bombs in a cemetery in Derry, Northern Ireland, which is about 70 miles northwest of Belfast. And yesterday in Derry, fringe pro-Irish members of the so-called new IRA threw Molotov cocktails and gas bombs at police. CNN's Phil Mattingly and nick robertson are live for us in belfast northern ireland and nick this trip coincides with the anniversary of the good friday agreement that's a deal brokered by the u.s signed 25 years ago to end the bloodshed between protestants and catholics in northern ireland there's uh, president biden uh, getting off air force one Uh, but now you say that that good friday agreement nick is under strain tell us more
7: yeah, the peace did come. The bombs and bullets uh, stopped flying, stopped going off. But what didn't happen was an exploration and uh, coming to an agreement on the future identity of Northern Ireland. Of course, there's the Unionists who want to be pro-British, and there's the Nationalists who'd like to be a, a part of a united island. And this has never been reconciled. And that gets to the underlying tensions, and that gets to the group who were throwing the Molotov cocktails yesterday at the police, the same group who went in the cemetery. We went in there with them yesterday. Uh, there was a moment where they all hid under umbrellas so that the police helicopters flying overhead and police drones couldn't spy on them. Um, uh, Today, the police went in that cemetery and in that same area where those uh, young men were hiding. They found four pipe bombs today. The police believe these would have been used against the police. There's nothing this group would like more than to cause explosion and mayhem when President Biden is here because it would put the spotlight on them when there's so much international coverage here. So it's unlikely that this sort of uptick in violence is going to impact the president directly. More security, of course, in Belfast because of it. But the reality is it underscores that there are still those tensions that some of the issues, the Good Friday Agreement, just didn't resolve. Uh,
0: You're looking at images right there. Uh, In addition to President Biden, I should note you see the U.K. Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak. Also, if you recognize uh, the tall redhead on the right there, that is former congressman from Massachusetts, uh, Joe Kennedy, the third, uh, I believe, uh, and he is the special envoy to Northern Ireland. Phil, um, are President Biden or his team concerned about the security situation in Northern Ireland?
8: You know, the president was asked about the increased uh, security threat a week ago, and he said, they can't keep me out. And I think that underscores, one, his determination to make this trip something that's been essentially circled on the calendar since he took the Oval Office in January of 2021. But also, I think this moment and everything Nick just described underscores the rationale for being in Northern Ireland at all, for coming to Belfast and kind of gets behind the scenes of the speech the president plans to give tomorrow at Ulster University, a recognition that despite the very real good and peace and stability brought by the a Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago, there is still so much more that can and should be done, particularly on the economic side of things. You mentioned uh, Joe Kennedy, who's here as the uh, special envoy to Northern Ireland, specifically on economic issues. And the core of the president's message while he will be here will certainly be about maintaining the Good Friday Agreement, about seeing through uh, the Windsor Agreement that was uh, signed on to in February, but also about the economic possibilities uh, and development that need to happen here uh, that could mirror to some degree the development of this transportation in Ireland over the course of the last couple decades.
0: All right, Phil Mattingly and Nick Robertson for us in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Thanks to both of you. Now to Israel. Overnight, hundreds of protesters blocked the main road in Tel Aviv in opposition to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government and the actions the government has been taking, specifically its role in soaring tensions during the overlapping Jewish and Muslim holidays, uh, Passover and Ramadan, as well as proposed judicial reforms and much more, really. CNN's Hadass Gold is in Jerusalem, where some are starting to question Netanyahu's judgment, especially as his far right security minister, Ben Gavir, continues to inflame this already quite volatile situation.
9: When Benjamin Netanyahu entered office for his third stint in December, he did so only with the support of far right parties, once considered the fringe of Israeli politics.
5: The way it is now, you think. But when asked
9: sent. by CNN's Jake yeah, Tapper about their influence in his government, he brushed point. them off.
5: But I don't I'm know governing, I've i got my two hands on the wheel, and believe me, it's going to be a good direction.
9: Even if Netanyahu's hands are on the wheel, people like National Security Minister Itamar Bengvir are making it a bumpy ride.
7: I think Netanyahu got his hands on the steering wheel, but he has Bengvir and Smotrich with their leg on the gas. Netanyahu is the prime minister, no doubt. But he's not the leader of this government.
9: Now overseeing the Israeli police, whose multiple raids into the Al-Aqsa Mosque last week, after Palestinians barricaded themselves inside, helped spark rocket fire from Lebanon and Gaza. Former Prime Minister Yair Lapid calling on Netanyahu to strip Ben Gvir of his police powers over the holy sites.
6: The Temple Mount during Ramadan is the most explosive place in the world it is not possible that it is being dealt with by a clown on TikTok that has lost the confidence of the police and the forces on the ground.
9: On Monday, Ben Gvir marching alongside thousands of Israeli settlers to an outpost still deemed illegal under this government, as Palestinians clashed with Israeli security nearby. Last month, protests against Netanyahu's massive judicial overhaul plan exploded into the biggest general strike in Israeli history. For hours Netanyahu was nowhere to be seen. Just a tweet urging protesters to behave responsibly. Instead, the news of a pause to the legislation came in the form of a statement from Ben Gvir, who seemed to be the final stumbling block before the pullback could be announced. Guaranteed a new National Guard under his ministry in exchange for agreeing to the pause. Although he promised his supporters that the overhaul will still happen.
1: So that's a lunatic uh, step of Netanyahu, which shows to what extent he cannot make uh, a
7: sincere judgment.
9: Now, even Netanyahu's own former top lieutenants are questioning his judgment.
7: I believe that uh,
10: the Benjamin Netanyahu of today is not the Benjamin Netanyahu that I knew when he appointed me head of Mossad. And... uh, I grieve for this, but I cannot accept that he should continue and uh, lead the country.
9: As Israel quickly approaches its 75th Independence Day, Netanyahu driving the country into unknown territory. Now, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu earlier today announcing that non-Muslims will be barred from going to the Temple Mount slash the Al-Aqsa compound. For the remainder of Ramadan, this announcement likely bringing a sigh of relief to much of the security establishment here who believe that will help calm the rising tensions. But Itamar Benvir, the minister of national security, saying in a statement that this is a serious mistake that he believes will not bring peace, but will only escalate the situation, saying that they must strike back to terrorism with tremendous force, not surrender to it and to its whims.
0: All right. Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, the lawsuit just filed by the Manhattan DA, who indicted Donald Trump. It's a lawsuit against the top House Republicans. Stay with us. In our politics, lead a judge today ruling that Dominion voting systems cannot bring up the January 6th insurrection during its upcoming defamation trial against Fox. But the judge is also blocking Fox from bringing up certain evidence that the company had hoped to present to the jury and from making some First Amendment argues to defend the numerous lies they presented to their viewers. Jury selection begins Thursday. CNN's Oliver Darcy is following the case for us. And Oliver, what's the
11: significance uh, of these rulings today ahead of the start of this trial? Well, Jake, these, uh, these rulings are pretty significant in that they will shape uh, some of the rules at the trial, which is set to start on Monday. Uh, the judge, as you said, ruled that Fox or that Dominion cannot bring up the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The judge saying that this may be for another court at another time, but it's not for this court at this time. Uh, That said, Jake, the judge did rule in favor uh, for Dominion on a number of issues. Uh, The judge ruling that they can bring up uh, financial information uh, that they found in Discovery as it relates to Fox. So compensation, for instance, they can bring that up. He says economics are relevant. And he also talks about how Fox cannot bring up some of the broadcasts they aired in which they fact check some of Dominion's or some of Trump's election lies. He says that's not relevant to the case at hand here because you can't absolve yourself, he says, uh, from defamation by putting someone on uh, at a different time. So some victories for Dominion, some for Fox. Again, like you said, this uh, jury selection starting on Thursday and the trial will go on. Uh, on Monday with opening arguments unless a settlement can somehow be reached between the two parties.
0: Meanwhile, these lies uh, that Trump and his uh, minions, including those who work at Fox, told about Dominion, they're still here and still impacting how Republican voters look at electronic voting. Tell us
11: about that. Yeah, Jake, lies have consequences. And it's pretty clear at this point that uh, a significant portion of the GOP base uh, has been influenced by these lies. And some of them are in charge of, uh, uh, you know, voting uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, coming up with the systems in place for people to vote. And so, for instance, over in Shasta County, uh, a county in California, they're no longer comfortable with Dominion voting machines because of some of these lies. Uh, so these lies did have consequences. That's why Dominion is taking Fox to court. And we'll see what happens in the weeks ahead.
0: Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, we've already seen so many of these damaging texts and emails from Fox executives and hosts in the case in which they acknowledge uh, that the nonsense they were putting on their air and putting guests on their air sharing uh, they knew to be false. If you were a Fox attorney defending Fox, how would you feel going into jury selection
12: this week about your case? I'd feel queasy, Jake. I would not want to be in the position of defending Fox here. I think they're headed for a full-blown journalistic and legal disaster. It is very difficult to successfully sue a media outlet for defamation in this country. What you have to prove is what we call actual malice, meaning the statements were false and the defendant made those statements knowingly or with reckless disregard of the truth. Now, that's a very high bar, but here we have Fox's own texts in black and white where they call the election fraud claims, and I quote, nuts insane BS. And so you contrast that with the things that Fox said on air. And I think Fox is in a very difficult position here.
0: Now, the judge granted partial summary judgment to Dominion in this case. What does that mean? How significant is it?
12: Well, that's a big win for Dominion because the the judge has now ruled as a matter of law and fact, these statements about election fraud were false. That's not even going to the jury. So the judge will tell the jury I instruct you, jury, these statements were false. Your only job is to decide that actual malice question. Did Fox know or were they reckless? And so with that ruling, Dominion's really halfway to where they need to get.
0: Are we going to hear, do you think, from some of the, the high-profile names in the case, whether it's Rupert Murdoch or Sean Hannity?
12: Absolutely. Rupert Murdoch, the judge ruled, has to testify. Sean Hannity is on both sides witness list. Maria Bartiromo and others are very likely witnesses. And Jake, When someone's a news anchor, they're sort of used to asking the questions and to dictating what the topics will be. Let me tell you, the tables are going to be turned when those folks are sitting in the witness box. It will not be up to them when the questioning is over. It will not be up to them what the topic will be. They're going to be at the mercy of the judge and the lawyers.
0: Bill Barr, the former attorney general, uh, who's been pretty clear about these lies being lies, uh, he wrote an op-ed saying that he did not think that this would be a good decision for journalism writ large, uh, if Dominion wins. I don't know if you read his case, but you've heard the First Amendment arguments. What do you think
12: of them? I disagree. I think that the First Amendment needs to be very broad. It should be broad. We in the media take advantage of the First Amendment as we should. It's part of our system, but it's not limitless. And if, as the allegation is here, any outlet or any person lies knowing that it is false, Then, yes, there can be civil consequences. So, I disagree with Attorney General Barr on that.
0: On on another matter, um, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who indicted Donald Trump, he's suing Republican House Judiciary Committee Chairman, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio. He's accusing Jordan of a quote, transparent campaign to intimidate and attack his office because it is bringing this case against Donald Trump. What's your reaction?
12: Well, first of all, I should note, I worked with Alvin Bragg. He's a former colleague of mine, but I applaud him here. As much as I've raised questions about the merits of the case, he's taking a stand. He's striking back here. And he's saying, essentially, you in the United States Congress have no jurisdiction here. You do not have the right or the legal ability to interfere with, to open up a local criminal grand jury investigation. I think he's right. And I think he's taking an important stand for the independence and integrity of his office.
0: All right, Elijona, good to see you. Thank you so much. Coming up at the top of the hour, we expect Louisville police to release body cam video, police body cam video of that tragic bank shooting. We're going to bring that to you when it happens. Also, had the message today from President Biden when he called the family of that detained Wall Street Journal reporter unfairly imprisoned in Russia. Stay with us. In our worldly, the family of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia, is reacting to a phone call today from President Biden. A new statement from the family says, quote, We are encouraged that the State Department has officially designated Evan as wrongfully detained. We appreciate President Biden's call to us today, unquote. The White House says that during the phone call, President Biden made mention of another unfairly detained American.
10: The president made it clear that his national security team has been and will remain focused on securing Evan's release as well as that of Paul Whelan.
0: Both Gershkovich and Whelan are detained on what are largely believed to be false, trumped up charges of espionage. Whelan is a former U.S. Marine. He was left behind in the last two prisoner swaps, one for former Marine Trevor Reed, the other for WNBA star Brittany Greiner. With us now, Paul Whelan's brother, David Whelan. Uh, David, your parents were able to speak to Paul yesterday for the first time in nearly two weeks. He has now spent four years wrongfully detained since December t- 2018, living a bleak life inside a a Russian uh, penal colony right now. How is he doing?
13: He seems to be surviving as well as you can in that sort of situation. He said that his uh, weight is mostly stable. He'd lost a little bit. The food portions in the prison have uh, been reduced as the sanctions start to bite in the Russian economy. Uh, he's, He's doing the best he can to get by.
0: Your folks say that Paul is aware of Evan Gershkovich's case. Um, And his fear of being left behind a third time was apparently palpable. Now, today you wrote in a blog post, quote, I can't conceive a scenario where the U.S. government conceded anything to the Kremlin for an American's release that did not include Paul. It would be an unconscionable betrayal, unquote. Um, Did President Biden or any other U.S. officials assure you and your family that Evan Gershkovich will not
13: come home uh,
0: without Paul?
13: No, and we wouldn't expect that assurance. I don't think we want to have Mr. Gershkovich not come home either. Uh, But these cases are identical. They're identical charges. They're identical. They're the only two Americans who are designated wrongfully detained in Russia. And so if there are resources to bring home either of them, I would expect those resources to be applied to Paul's case, and not exclusively. If it could bring both Paul and Evan home, that would be super.
0: Paul told CNN that he thinks his case for release is tougher because the Russians have baselessly accused him of being a spy, uh, unlike Brittany Griner or Trevor Reed, who were accused uh, of lesser charges, other charges. Um, but now Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter, is also being baselessly accused of being a spy. Do you think this puts both of their cases on, on the same level in terms of how Russia is going to negotiate?
13: I think that's correct. I think that they have applied the label of espionage to uh, both of the Americans, Paul and Evan, and uh, will probably be trying to get concessions that are, in their view, uh, equivalent to those charges.
0: We interviewed last week uh, Nicholas Davidoff. Davidoff, He was uh, a journalist. I believe he was with U.S. News and World Report. He was unfairly detained and on trumped up charges of espionage. Uh, During the Soviet Union days, uh, Gorbachev uh, was the premier. Uh, He said that they didn't even present evidence of this so-called espionage. It was just a crock to begin with. But then again, he was only uh, detained for a couple weeks. Have have the Russians presented any evidence uh, against your brother that is even remotely credible?
13: I think even talking about it is playing the uh, playing into the Kremlin's narrative. Uh, there was a secret trial. There was secret evidence. Paul was not uh, given the opportunity to bring uh, witnesses to uh, testify to his innocence. Uh, so I think even talking about whether they have uh, um, evidence or what that evidence could be uh, is just really playing towards the Kremlin's attempt to make this into something that it isn't, which is it's it's false charges.
0: Fair enough. Are you concerned that the U.S., will view Gershkevich as a higher priority because he's a journalist and therefore, to many people, uh, represents freedom of the press?
13: I think that'd be disappointing. I think they are both American citizens and they both deserve the, the full weight of the U.S. government behind them, regardless of what their profession is, uh, regardless of how they ended up in this situation. They've been Labeled wrongfully detained, they've been charged with the same crimes, and I think they deserve the same treatment.
0: Do you think that the two prisoner swaps for Trevor Reed and Brittany Greiner, uh, which got Russia some pretty bad guys in return um, for these two innocent Americans, do you think um, this might have motivated Russia to detain another American, Evan Gershkovich, because they might be able to get something more out of it?
13: I don't think it would have been a motivation. I think that the, US, uh, the Russian government uh, is motivated by its own particular interests. And uh, I, I think the fact that they have charged Mr. Gerskovich with espionage shows that they have some sort of intention of using that for parity uh, for whatever concession they're trying to extort from the U.S. government. Um, I don't know that any of these cases have any impact on any of the other cases.
0: David Whelan, thank you so much. We're going to continue to pray for your brother. And more importantly, perhaps we're going to continue to cover his story. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jay. Coming up next, I'm going to speak to one state governor who is stockpiling the abortion pill while the courts sort out this judge's recent ruling suspending uh, access to the drug. Plus, any minute, we do expect police to release new body cam video uh, showing the heroic actions of police in Louisville responding to that horrific mass shooting inside a bank. In our world lead, it is all hands on deck at the Pentagon as officials race to figure out who leaked that trove of highly sensitive classified documents. Some even speculate it could have been the child of a Pentagon official wanting to show off to his friends on social media, though we do not yet know for sure. But now Egypt, one of the world's top recipients of U.S. military aid, has been forced to deny a damning report from the leaked documents that Egypt planned to supply Russia with 40,000 rockets. The White House's John Kirby just weighed in and said there's no indication Egypt is providing any lethal aid to Russia. CNN's Oren Lieberman has much more now on the monumental fallout from this massive leak. Secretary,
3: Tonight, top U.S. officials trying to get ahead of the damage caused by a leak of highly sensitive documents.
5: I will tell you that we take this very seriously and we will continue to investigate and, and turn over every rock until we find the source of this and the extent of it. Defense
3: Secretary Lloyd Austin promising results from an investigation just getting underway while Secretary of State Anthony Blinken worked to reassure foreign nations.
13: We have engaged with allies and partners at high levels uh, over the uh, the past uh, the past days including uh, to uh, reassure them about our own commitment to safeguarding intelligence and of course our commitment to our Uh, security partnerships.
3: The Department of Justice is handling the criminal investigation of the leaks, while DOD is part of a broader look into how the leaks have impacted national security. The leaks have reached across the globe, revealing U.S. spying on adversaries, including Russia and China, but also on U.S. allies and partners, among them Israel, South Korea, and many more. (laughs) Some of the documents reviewed by CNN offer sensitive details on Ukraine's military capabilities, or lack thereof, including critical shortages of air defenses and overall casualty assessments after more than a year of war. Ukrainian officials downplayed the significance of the leaks, saying some of the information wasn't secret at all. But a source close to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the military has already changed some of its plans because of the leaks. In a new set of leaked documents obtained by the Washington Post, the U.S. learned Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi was considering providing 40,000 rockets to Russia for its war in Ukraine, but to do so quietly to avoid problems with the West, since Egypt is one of the largest recipients of U.S. military aid. CNN has not seen the documents and cannot confirm their authenticity. Egyptian state media called the report an informational absurdity, while the Kremlin called it another hoax, and the U.S. says they've seen no signs of Egypt providing lethal aid to Russia, but it underscores the far-reaching consequences of the leaks.
4: I want a briefing on the logistics, right, on how this information got out there, but we also need to get briefings on the substance. The leaked
3: documents appear to be part of a daily intelligence briefing prepared for the Pentagon's senior leaders, officials said. The documents can be accessed by hundreds, if not thousands, of people across the government with the proper security clearance. And it's disseminated not only on secure tablets, but also printed out in some cases, certainly as we see here, as well as disseminated via email and forwarded. So some of that creates an electronic trail that can be tagged. Jake, some of it does not. And that compounds the problem, as well as the motives of who might do this and why. Certainly countries like Russia and China have tried to use leaks like, leaks like this to their advantage in the past.
0: All right. Uh, CNN's and Lieberman at the Pentagon Forest, Thank you so much. Turning to our Health Lead, a new poll, shows that more than half of the American people think that medication abortion, the abortion pill, should be legal in their state. The Pew Research Center poll found 53% of Americans wanted the pill to remain legal. 22% say it should be illegal. 24% said they were unsure. The poll was conducted in the days before that federal judge in Texas halted the FDA approval of the abortion drug Mifepristone, while the future legality of access to the abortion pill remains up in the air. The leader of one state, Massachusetts, has been stockpiling that drug. Governor Maura Healy of Massachusetts joins us now. Governor, uh, in the wake of the Texas judge's ruling stripping the abortion drug Mifepristone of its FDA approval, you've taken three actions, as I understand it. Correct me if I'm wrong. You announced that UMass Amherst ordered roughly 15,000 doses of Mifepristone last week. You signed an executive order Clarifying a law from last year, which protects abortion providers from out-of-state legal action, you say that this also will apply to prescribing mifepristone. And thirdly, your administration said you're going to chip in $1 million to buy even more mifepristone. Why are you taking all these actions and why are you stockpiling mifepristone and not misoprostol, which is the other abortion drug, which has not yet been challenged in court, but, but could be?
10: Well, great questions. And I guess I begin with this, Jake. The battle to ban abortion has been waged in the states. And I believe that the battle to secure abortion, to protect abortion and women's access to reproductive health care is going to be won in the states. So that is why, as governor, I acted uh, through my executive authority to do two things. One, to make sure that whatever is happening out there, Texas court elsewhere, that nothing was going to impact a woman's ability to access Mifepristone here in Massachusetts. So that's why we stockpiled. We, we asked our University of Massachusetts system to make purchases. They did. We had a number of private hospitals also make purchases. So the good news is Mifepristone will be available to women in Massachusetts for an indefinite period, for a long time. That's how much we were able to secure. The second thing, Jake, is we don't want doctors, prescribers, pharmacists, other providers to be scared, to think that their professional licensure is going to be potentially taken away or that their malpractice insurer is no longer going to cover them. So again, through my executive authority made clear that under Massachusetts law, their license will be protected. Insurers need to continue to cover these individuals. So it's really two things, making sure we have access to medication and making sure that we have people here ready to provide that that medication. So
0: I know you've assessed that your stockpile, which I believe is about 15,000 doses of Mifepristone, that that would be enough to last uh, Massachusetts uh, girls and women a year. Um, But what happens when it runs out?
10: Well, look, uh, we'll continue to order as we need to. That's probably a year or maybe even two years worth. And in, in addition, we've had a number of conversations with our hospitals and healthcare systems. You know, again, Massachusetts is home to some of the greatest hospitals and healthcare systems in the world. And so they've already made their purchase orders as well. So we're going to continue to keep medication abortion here and available in Massachusetts, frankly, for women here, but also for others who may need it. And, you know, it's unbelievable that we're having this conversation that one lone judge in Amarillo, Texas saw fit to upend what has been decades and decades of the way that the FDA does its business. And in Massachusetts, we're not only are we proud of protecting abortion access and reproductive freedom for women, we're also home to life sciences and the discovery and innovation of so many drugs and, and research. And so, you know, it's very disturbing that any court, let alone the Supreme Court, would let stand a ruling that effectively throws out what has been the way of research and innovation when it comes to medication in this country for decades. So we'll, we'll continue to fight that in court. But in the meantime, Jake, yeah. it's important to know that Democratic governors like me are fighting back, and we're going to continue to make medication abortion
0: available. Well, there are those who say that the FDA should just ignore the judge's ruling, uh, specifically Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York, and Congresswoman uh, Nancy Mace, uh, a Republican from South Carolina. Do, do you agree? Should the FDA just agree, uh, uh, ignore the ruling? Or do you see that as setting a dangerous precedent?
10: Well, I think what's a dangerous precedent is what this judge, this extremist judge who was put there for one reason by Donald Trump, has done. That's what's upsetting. Uh, And that is what is so problematic. I mean, it was bad enough to have to go through Dobbs last year, 50 years of Roe reversed by the court. Here we have 20 years of medication abortion, safe and effective. It's been tested time and time again. It's the gold standard of medication abortion, which is the way that the vast majority of women access abortion care across our country. The idea that the, the FDA is no longer supposed to engage in what has been the, the uniform way of doing work um, is just outrageous. So obviously the Biden administration's appealing. That's important. I know our state and a number of states will support that appeal. Right now, I don't think the FDA needs to do anything but to continue to do business as it does business. And, you know, this this really gets to the heart of, you know, are we a country that believes in medical expertise, scientific expertise, research and, and knowledge and innovation? Um, it's pretty scary because, Last week, it was mifepristone. What are the next set of drugs and what are the implications for that if this kind of ruling were allowed to stand? And it's why I'm very clear, Jake, that, you know, not on my watch in Massachusetts. We're going to make sure that medication abortion remains safe and legal and accessible. And I expect the FDA will come out the same way.
0: So. With respect, you didn't answer my question. Do do you think that the FDA should ignore the judge, or do you think the FDA should continue to just uh, follow the basic legal procedures?
10: They should follow the the legal procedures. They shouldn't change course um, until and unless something radical changes in terms of an opinion. But look, this is a district court order. It's essentially on appeal right now. Uh, It's likely to be stayed. And in the meantime, the FDA should continue to do what it does, which is to make sure that women and folks across this country are able to access proven, safe, and efficacious medication, Mifepristone included.
0: Democratic Governor Amara Healy of the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, always good to see you. Thank you so much.
10: Great to be with you, Jake.
0: Turning back to our national lead, that deadly bank shooting in Louisville, let's bring in Wolf Blitzer, who's getting ready in the Situation Room. And Wolf, you're you're about to talk to Louisville Mayor uh, Craig Greenberg.
5: We're going to not only talk to him, we're going to have a lot more on the just released body cam video, Jake, uh, from that bank shooting. The Louisville mayor uh, will join us live with his instant reaction to the footage and what it reveals about the police response to this massacre. We'll also press the mayor for the newest details on the investigation as he continues to make a very emotional and very personal plea for gun reform in the state. It's all ahead at the top of the hour in the Situation Room, Jake.
0: All right. I will be watching. Thanks so much, Wolf. We'll see you in a few minutes. Right next door in the Situation Room. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at JigTapper. You can tweet the show at the Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Whence you get your podcast, all two hours, just sitting there like a like a delicious bunch of buffalo wings. In honor of my friend Wolf Blitzer, who's in the Situation Room right next door. That's next.